Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information, and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. podcast with the vet gurus brendan and mark um and the date is we're not going to tell you what the date is because this is a special um little podcast that we fit in in between our other other podcasts and um we have a really interesting topic this week um to talk about we're going to talk about reptiles um but before we do that just um reminding people about how to contact us vetgurus at gmail.com and also um we do have a twitter account as well which i've forgotten already mark <laughs> um i think it's just um well what is it it's i'll look it up in a minute when you're talking mark and then i'll um, um, um let our listeners know um News. We have a couple of um, news items, and I think Mark, you were going to jump into the news items this week. It was on um, some birds, um, and I, 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 you know how much I love my um, Australian birds and uh, our unusual species, and particularly the ones that are in a bit of um, um, stress. And I wanted to, well. Pretty much, I wanted to brag um, that uh, very recently I had the pleasure of travelling to the Capiti Valley in the um, western part of the Blue Mountains and uh, spent some time taking photos of birds there. And I was lucky enough, very lucky, to um, to see some Regent honey eaters. Um, so this is one of uh, our, our most endangered birds. There's uh, breeding programs going on at uh, at the zoo in Melbourne, Brendan, and in Adelaide. Um, yes. And there's only 600 of these birds in the wild. Um, they really uh, are one of the, you know, there's probably two major factors that affect them in the wild. The, the first one is, um, is, as is always the case, habitat loss. And um, the habitat loss then forces them to have increasing contacts with other honey eaters um, and the interactions with other honey eaters, particularly the more belligerent uh, bell, uh, noisy miners, um, will often lead to um, failure to have reproductive events. But I was lucky enough to be in the Capity and uh, and we did find um, a, a, a mugger ironbark that was literally had um, uh, seven adult birds feasting on the uh, um, nectar-rich flowers of the mugger and, um, and, and just as we were getting wonderful photographs uh, uh, at a distance, making sure not to disturb them using the uh, full value of the 500mm lens I took along, um, the we found that where we'd positioned ourselves was under a tree that one of the pairs had nested in. Um, so we were lucky enough to spot uh, some pre-fledgling chicks. And as I understand it, this year has been one of the best reproductive years over the last decade. There's uh, uh, something like 111 or 112 recorded nests um, that the researchers into this species have identified this year. So while I've been banging on about um, uh, 
our birds dying out all over the place, it's so good to be able to deliver some positive news about one of our endangered species. Yes. Now, you must tell me, how much does your 500 mil lens weigh? Don't tell me the cost of it, just tell me <laughs> the weight of it. It's um, 3.6 kilos. It's a heavy, heavy lens, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I have, which, since, which, I've, since I've got it, my biceps have literally gotten bigger. <laughs> That's no joke. That's true. <laughs> which is why I stick with my mirrorless camera, as you know. <laughs> so the old debate, but the debate of mirrorless versus um, DSLR, yes. Um, so, yeah, I'll convert you one day, Mark. I'll convert you one day, you know, and, um, You'll, you'll, you'll pick up the 300mm um, Olympus um, with the um, teleconverter and, and um, you'll be lifting it up with one finger. Um, it will be that easy um, to get around with it, yeah, um, and you'll get some fantastic shots with it. Um, the, um, the sad thing, speaking photography, um, that um, I've um, been following, I'm sure you have um, recently, is... Um, over the last few months or year or so is the, um, the trouble Nikon or Nikon, um, depending on what area of the world, um, you live in, um, is struggling a little bit. And it would be really sad to see if, um, this company ends up, um, not existing anymore, which is what's happened with a fair few ph- photographic, um, of photography, um, companies over the years, um, because competition is good. And I've owned, um, well, the main um, photographic equipment I've owned has been Nikon or Nikon and um, some Canon equipment um, in the past and, and currently I'm an Olympus man. Um, and I think if um, it was only left to be in um, Canon um, and we didn't have Nikon anymore or Nikon, then I think it would be a sad day. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Mark? I, I agree entirely. On uh, As you well know, I um, have uh, inherited some very well-kept Nikon equipment um, <laughs> and, and added it to my uh, 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 already um, decent collection. Um, and, uh, and so I am a little bit of a um, Nikon aficionado and I would be um, more than a little depressed if, um, if they – uh, failed to um, to stay in the marketplace and and continue um, to provide the excellent quality photographic equipment that they do, but it is there's no guarantee anymore, is there? That, that um, these organisations can have um, wonderful products in many fields, um, whether it be photography or um, uh, um, and wherever, um, and um, and just uh, the vagaries of um, marketing and um, uh, all those things being what they are mean that um, just having a good product is no longer enough to ensure that uh, that you can stay in these markets. And um, and I, like you, would be seriously um, disappointed if we uh, didn't have them with us anymore. Yes, and speaking photography, we should turn this into a, a veterinary photography um, podcast. Um, the product review for this week um, is a little bit of equipment that I use in the clinic um, for promoting the practice and, and clients seem to love it. And that, and I have mentioned it on a previous podcast, and that is the Fujifilm Instax SP1 smartphone printer. And the beauty of this is that it is just a little portable printer. Um, it's probably, I don't know, the size of 
um, what's the best way to describe it? Um, it is um, about um, 15 centimetres long and 10 centimetres wide and probably five centimetres deep. Um, and the beauty of it is it, it, it is not um, um, a um, actual camera itself. It is just a printer and it connects to a smartphone. So um, in my practice, it connects to the iPhone that I have. So in consultations, especially with new clients and, and those little cute puppies or, or reptiles or, or birds or amphibians or, or small mammals, I'll take a photo of that um, animal um, on my smartphone, on my iPhone, and then I can print out with this Instax printer um, a little um, a little Polaroid-type um, tiny little um, um, print of that animal, um, usually with the client there um, in the picture, and then I stick that on the vaccination cards um, for the rabbits and the, and the dogs and the cats, and, and the clients love it. Um, so it's a little me- memento to take, um, take home. And then years later when the animal and the client is looking a lot older, um, we can have a good laugh at, um, you know, remember the day when you brought little Fido in um, as a puppy um, and we have a look at that little um, picture there. So simple, easy and cheap um, um, little um, smartphone printer and I think it's um, great to do that. Clients love these little little photos that you take of their pets and I'm always, as, as you know, we're into photography, I'm always taking photos of, of patients um, that are anaesthetised as well to, to, to explain um, the surgery that we've just done in that, that person. But, yeah, the Instax printer, um, it's well worth getting and you can buy them quite quite easily on, on um, eBay, etc., cetera, um, um, for use in your clinic. So, you know, I think that the prints are the perfect fit size to fit on the front of vaccination cards um, for dogs and cats and rabbits. Um, so that's what I recommend. So that's the product review for this week. Um, and, um, yeah, I think, were you about to say something there, Mark? I heard you sort of rustling in the background. I was. I was just going to – I wanted to um, – I think – one of the beauties of um, this podcast, when we travel, we like to drop into veterinary hospitals and see what they do and pick up those little, you know, tips, the little things that they do. Often the things that are most useful are the ones that bind us to our clients. And, yeah, I, we don't use the, the printer you described, but um, I can see it playing a role in in, uh, in that process of connecting with the client and creating a history and uh um, a context that they feel comfortable coming to the hospital um, and they must always feel really good when you point out how grey their hair has gotten since they first took the photo. Well, at least they have hair. That's um, that's a bonus, I think, um, and I wish I had that. Um, okay, so I reckon, I think we should jump to our main topic because I expect that we're going to talk for a fair period of minutes um, on our main topic. So our main topic for this week is surgery in reptiles um, because it's a common um, inquiry I get from from vet students and definitely from, from veterinarians who aren't used to dealing with reptiles. Um, just the basics on, on, on surgical techniques for, for reptiles. Um, so I think what we'll cover um, this week, and we'll have a bit of to and fro with um, the questions and comments um, between us on it, is um, the basics of surgery in reptiles. So, um, you know, what sort of um, 
sutures do we choose? Um, we'll talk a little bit about the skin healing in reptiles um, and what types of suture patterns we may be using in them, um, the approaches to the common um, um, areas of, 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 of the anatomy of reptiles, where to cut or, or where not to cut, I suppose, is the most important thing, and, and a few tips on maybe um, trying to... Um, help the animal wake up and I, I, th I reckon we talk about that first and that's the bit about um, keeping these reptiles warm during the surgery. Um, I think we'll leave um, anaesthesia of, of reptiles as a future podcast um, because we can cover a lot in about anaesthesia of reptiles um, but I find that one of the main reasons why reptiles potentially take a long time to wake up from surgery of any kind is that um, heat loss with them because we're dealing with an ectothermic animal and it needs that warmth um, and they lose that heat so rapidly um, during surgery. So it's essential that you keep them as warm as you can, um, close to those preferred body temperatures during the surgery. Um, and if you do that, then that that um, period when they're waking up over will be drastically reduced compared with a, a reptile that's cold by the time you finish the surgery. They can take forever to wake up and I, I think the main reason why they take so long to wake up is that they haven't been kept warm. Not that you used a, a particular anaesthetic agent in them, it's just you didn't keep them warm. What do I use in my practice? Um, I use a hot dog heat warming system um, and we have spoken about that on a previous podcast. I think it was our, our Christmas um, 2017 um, podcast special that I spoke about that particular product. So look back for that podcast if you want some more information on that. Um, and that's a little warming blanket that you can put around the reptile um, and the main other point I need to make about this before I, I, I throw over to you, Mark, is um, monitoring the, the, the core te temperature of these reptiles is really important during surgery. And um, that's where you need to use a, a um, cloacal um, thermometer there to, to, to watch that temperature rapidly drop. Even even using the best warming devices, you, you will find a drop in that temperature in those reptiles. So so that's my sort of first comment um, um, about um, surgery in reptiles. Keep them warm. Keep them warm before, during and after that surgery and you will minimise the time you're sitting there waiting for that reptile to wake up. Um, Mark, any thoughts or comments on that? I think not only the first thing to say, but it's a second and third and fourth. It, it is really so fundamentally important um, that, you know, we can't emphasise it enough. And as you say, it, uh, it first of all um, enhances their recovery speed. Um, but moreover, it, uh, it just about everything to do with uh, um, the surgical event, the way that they metabolize the analgesics we give them, the speed at which they recover in the ensuing days, all the, 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 uh, um, perfusion associated, uh, the perfusion required to get antibiotics around the body, all these things are, are temperature dependent and focusing on maintaining that body temperature. And as you said, we've, uh, uh, taken to having cloacal probes and it is scary even with relatively aggressive uh, warm air blowers and uh, um, uh, an attention to um, uh, the fluids that we might use to flush 
body cavities or whatever, making sure those uh, to the temperature of those fluids is appropriate, you still see the the, the uh, precipitous drop in body temperature. And uh, and I'm, I would be scared to see if we weren't so aggressive with these supportive modalities if we were to stick a cloacal uh, thermistor in and see what happened then. I, it would, well be frightening it would be scary so i i um monitoring um very aggressive multi-modality thermal support um these are foundational aspects to um successful surgery in reptiles in my opinion yeah and um i think we'll we'll cover the um, monitoring equipment in um a separate podcast on anesthesia in surgery because um there's certainly some differences there that we need to talk about with reptiles um, compared with mammals or birds. Um, some of it does cross over to avian um, monitoring as well, I suppose. But, um, yeah, we'll talk about that in another podcast. Um, so, yeah, heat loss, heat loss, very important with them. Um, um, the actual surgical techniques and approaches to these, um, um, if we stick with tips and, and, and tricks, um, a main one there is um, don't do what you'd um be tending to do in a in a um, mammal for a for an exploratory surgical procedure um, in that we don't go central um, midline approach um, to um, the abdominal cavity in these reptiles why because we have a large abdominal vein sitting there right in the midline there so I mean occasionally I have for, for, for certain um, Individuals ha- um, wanted to go directly midline um, in, a, in a reptile, and uh, I'd carefully dissect away from that ventral abdominal vein that um, is, is very large in, in the vast majority of, of, of the reptiles that we're dealing with. And we're not talking about chelonians, our turtles, and tortoises here. Um, so, if you are going to do some um, an exploratory um, laparotomy on a um, on a on a snake, a lizard. Um, a crocodilian, do a paramedian approach. So go just slightly to off to the side um, in in that animal, um, and then you take that whole ventral abdominal vein out of the equation because you don't want to incise it because it can be it tends to and I, and I'm sure you have too, Mark. Accidentally nicked this um, large abdominal vein. It's a bit of a bugger to try and um, to try and um, cauterize and, and 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 to tie off and to stop the bleeding um, or. Uh, you know the excellent surgeon that you are. You probably haven't done that, have you? No, that's that's entirely um, what I'd love to be able to say. But I'm I'm in the um, embarrassing situation of having to admit that more than once I have, um, as my focus has wandered around the the, the um, priorities in the surgery room, I've uh, nicked that blood vessel, and um, and as you say, it's a little bit of a fiddly effort to um, get back to a bloodless field. Um, and complete the surgery. Uh, it is a, a difficult vein to dissect and um, tie off. I usually have resorted to um, uh, hemoclips in those situations. Um, uh, and and the fortunate thing for me, where I've done it, is that the the um, the lizards and snakes that um, suffer that indignity seem to have no long-term um, consequences. There must be sufficient collateral circulation to um, to affect drainage, um, but um, but it is a uh, it's certainly a, a potentially life-threatening 
um, in a in, in that group of animals that are anemic and yeah, they bleed quite a lot very quickly from that uh, um, incision. I'd I'd be worried about um, uh, the amount that whether they could continue to recover, and I certainly wouldn't rule out the possibility that um, that uh, that it becomes a, a a very dangerous surgical complication. So I encourage people to be a little bit more careful than me maybe and make sure they concentrate throughout the surgical procedure on that paramedian incision and avoid the, the time they have to spend trying to stop the bleeding. Yes, and that's a very good segue into probably the ne- next point and that's um, fluid therapy um, for these animals and can be quite a challenge with them and, and the idea or the gold standard would be having them um, on fluids um, during the time of surgery, especially for any prolonged surgery. And I think it's really getting back to basics with them. Um, you know, what's the ideal as far as getting fluids into a reptile that's anaesthetised and that would be intravenous some fluid therapy and, and we certainly do that in, 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 in some of the reptiles that we're... Um, um, undertaking surgery on and that would be probably more often by doing a, a, a cut down um, over the jugular um, and and putting a catheter in there and providing um, um, intravenous therapy that way. Some of the larger lizards um, we can um, visualise and manage to get um, uh, the peripheral veins like cephalic etc. And I'd be interested in your opinion on this one, Mark. Um, one of the other sites that's um, commonly mentioned, especially in the reptile um, textbooks, um, is catheterising the ventral tail vein in, in large lizards and also snakes and using that as a port for intravenous um, fluid therapy. I, I, I must admit I, I rarely use that um, as, as a method of um um, providing fluid support in these anaesthetised reptiles, um, and I use some of the other techniques that we'll talk about in a sec. Um, do you do you often or or, or, or have you used the um, catheterised um, um, ventral tail veins in in reptiles, Mark? I have uh, I've made attempts to. That's the best I can say. Uh, same as you, as I've read the literature and um, seen that seen the cases where people have. Um, have recorded uh, case studies where they've used this technique. Um, I thought, there you go, that's something that I can add to my repertoire. Um, But I've been universally, um, uh, well, it's been a universal failure for me. I I have not had one where I've been able to get uh, a a catheter into the ventral tail vein um, and uh, and I've uh, invariably given up after um, several attempts and we certainly have used um, needles into the tail vein to um, uh, maybe administer uh, the anaesthetic um, uh, alfaxin. We'll talk about that in a separate podcast um, and uh, left the the, uh, the needle in place and then used that to supply fluids in particular cases um, and we've been lucky to be able to hold the vein on the needle, um, but um, but I, I haven't been had the same success with um, with placing a catheter, not at all. So it's not a technique that's that's something we we would routinely try now. But I do I, I get a big kick. I actually really enjoy um, uh, the cut down on our mainly we're doing it with our large pythons, um, cutting down onto the jugular and um, cannulating the jugular um, through a small 
centimetre long incision and um, and I do just feel so much more confident about the the uh, the the procedure when we have that fluid in place and um, we're making sure that the animals are not dehydrated. Yeah, um, similar similar with me. Yeah, in that uh, as I mentioned, I, I I rarely, if ever, use the um, ventral tail veins to ca- try and catheterize and provide fluid support that way. I do occasionally use that as a method for, and I think you were sort of hinting at it there, um, bolus um, fluid support. So yeah, we'd often induce uh, the, um, the the large lizard or the or the snake um, with with intravenous. Um, and anesthetic agents via ventral tail vein, um, and then later on, I may give a bolus um, of of, of um, fluids that way. Um, so, are other methods of getting fluids into these animals if we're not going for intravenous? And I think a lot of people forget that there are other methods of getting fluids into an animal apart from our intravenous methods. Um, and the, the second one that I'd, I'd probably mention is um, is do you know what I'm going to talk about, Mark? I've got no idea, Brendan. <laughs> is um, um, is you always you always um <laughs> you always throw me excellent curveballs. I think you headed down one particular path, and I try and anticipate. You know, um, uh, I had a a, um, a really great friend whose name who gave his um, name to one of my sons, and. Um, and he would talk slowly, and I would always try and finish his sentences. I, I didn't mean it deliberately. I wasn't trying to be insulting. but um, And I know what he would do. He would leave these gaps. I would finish the sentence, and then he'd change the end of the sentence. And I think uh, that's what you do, Brendan. Well, <laughs> I'm going to leave a gap in a minute. So we've, 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 <laughs> we've, we've spoken about intra, intravenous. Um, the other one that um, – and it's used fairly commonly in rep- reptiles um, – not in anaesthesia and, and birds as well, is that, um, just into the body cavity, so intra-salomic or intra-abdominal. Um, remembering we've got a salomic cavity, we don't have a, a um, diaphragm there. So, um, And I'm going to – I'll take you to um, – to, to, uh, you know that I've done this for many years, but I've, we've really gone off it lately um, because – for two reasons. Because we – I think it does um, – Put some pressure on uh, the the uh, ventilation in our anaesthetized patients, and because one of my associates has become so proficient at placing intraosseous catheters, I can just about pick up any species these days. Obviously, not snakes. Um, and uh, and Dr. Alex, who works with me, finds a way to slide a catheter into the one of the long bones that's not pneumatized. And um, and and they that intraosseous catheters really, I want to sing their praises because uh, they give us essentially equivalent access to the circulation as venous access. Um, and uh, and they they're probably in. Certainly in our hospital at the moment, we're more consistently getting them in place. Well, there you go. You finished my sentence for me there because that's what I was going to talk about, intraosseous fluid therapy. And 
um, it's also used in in some of the small mammals um, that that we struggle to um, uh, get collapsed veins. Um, and in the small mammals, I'd be heading for the for the tibial crest and and pop in a little enterosseous catheter in there. And it's nothing fancy. Same with the reptiles. If we stick stick with the reptiles, I'm I'm not. I personally, we don't use it. I'm not using a, a specific intraosseous catheter. I'm just selecting typically a, an appropriate gauged in, um, IV needle, um, and that's my little catheter there. Um, in an awake animal, I'm jumping around here a little bit, um, I'd be putting a, a bleb of local anaesthetic um, in, in the um, area around it before I'm popping that intraosseous um, catheter in there. And these are usually... Um, slightly off topic collapsed reptiles that we would be doing this for um if we're if we're not talking about the anesthetized one so they're animals that are very compromised and we just want to get some fluids into that animal and yeah it, it's actually a skill um in the larger reptiles and the and the, and the larger of the small mammals it, it's something that can be learned i think by most most veterinarians to do and and it's something that i encourage you to to practice on maybe practice on a cadaver first but um it's amazing how um simple some of um these techniques of getting these um, um intraosseous fluids into the animal is so yeah intraosseous is, is certainly one to use um it is um, amazing too how like i always thought when we started placing these that um that there would have to be, you know, considerably more pressure on the the fluids coming in to get it to be absorbed. But it literally flows just like it's in a vein. The fluid, uh, um, the, the, you don't have to, like, drive it in uh, with a, a vigorous force on the plunger. The other thing in the literature that um, that I always used to worry about was the, the effect of coring that um, you will often read about uh, bits of bone lodging in, uh, in the needles, um, particularly if you don't use needles with stilettes um, and uh, um, spinal needles sometimes are useful. But um, but that's not been my experience. This is the same as you, Brendan. We just pull out the the um, the, the 22 or 20-gauge um, uh, needles and uh, locate our anatomic sites and, and uh, whack them in. And um, So do you have much problem with bone coring and blocking up your needle and having to do it a couple of times uh yes it can it it, 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 it it i think it varies on which ones and i don't think there's any pattern on which ones it does or doesn't um occur with um obviously the smaller the patient there if we're getting into a really small animal it can be quite challenging to to not have it block up um but yeah, I, th I think intraosseous is a is a great choice, and and it's something that most general practitioners would never think of, um, considering the use of intraosseous fluids um, in reptiles. Um, um, what, um, not just while they're anaesthetized, but um, for surgery, but um, when they're compromised. So it's a it, it's good it's a good technique to have in your armory, I think. Um, and yeah, interesting comments um, by you on the um, use of the intrasolomic fluids. Um, um, I do um, um, I do often use it as a once-off um, um, bolus again um, in in the reptiles in particular, um, and 
um, yeah, I, 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 I take on board your comments about the potential worry with, with causing compromise with them, um, um, especially in the birds. But if we stick with the reptiles, um, um, it's something I, I probably need to pay more attention to to see whether or not we're, we're compromising their respiratory function. So it's that balance between trying to keep this animal alive and provide fluid therapy via something that you want to do that potentially you can do very quickly um, by giving intrasolomic fluids in them. And and my general recommendations as far as where do we give that intrasolomic fluid, whether it's that anaesthetised um, surgical patient or, or that um, trauma patient that's come in that needs some immediate um, um, supportive care, is, is simply just to go for the left caudal, um, sorry, not the left, the right caudal quadrant in that animal. Um, so that means if it's a turtle, we're going in the right inguinal fossa um, into the salomic cavity. In a snake, it's in the right caudal quadrant, um, the back end of the snake on the right-hand side, and, and same with the lizards. Um, and the easiest way to remember that is the reason why we're going to the right caudal quadrant is on the left-hand side, potentially, we might hit things that that we don't want to hit with the needle, especially things like the spleen. Um, that might, it's virtually always sitting on that left-hand side in a lot of these animals. So that's where I tend to go. But more often than not, it's just a once-off um, intrasalamic um, um, bolus that I'll be using in these reptiles for them. So we have our anaesthetised um, reptile that um, you've you've um, anaesthetised with the with the um, anaesthetic agents that we'll talk about in another in another podcast. Um, um, we're worrying about or we're we're monitoring the heat loss with them, um, monitoring that core body temperature with them. Um, and again, I'd refer you back to the Christmas 2017 podcast where I review a um, particular. Um, thermometer that's very sensitive in, in measuring um, um, the core body temperatures. So head back to that podcast and um, have a bit of a listen to that product and there's some interesting comments about um, temperature measurement in in, um, in animals generally um, um, via rectal or cloacal temperatures. Um, let's jump to the, the, the other end of the um, surgery in reptiles and that's the healing aspect of of, um, of um, the skin in particular in reptiles, Mark. So um, let's, um, you can walk us through the, um, the, um, the, the, the skin healing in reptiles and um, what's the key point with that um, as far as um, 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 general practitioners, what they need to know about um, sutures in, in, in reptiles um, uh, in the skin in particular. Well, there's a couple. You, you, there's a couple of key points, I suppose. I would like to make. Um, the first one is that um, that very often um, uh, I will be doing not just skin sutures. That uh, there's often times when um, I just am not able to comfortably separate the skin. I'm going to cause more trauma. Um, the the muscle layer underneath is so thin and adherent um, to try and separate them is going to threaten the, the integrity of the, um, you know, maybe that uh, uh, vein we were talking about before, the ventral midline um, vein. So very often um, I'm incorporating the skin and the um, muscle layer, particularly in some of the smaller uh, individuals will be doing in one um, closure 
that's the first thing. We like to use relatively um, fine suture material. We don't like uh, big gigantic knots in these guys for a reason that I'll explain in a moment. Um, so uh, we might, um, and we're often using um, synthetic monofilament absorbable sutures of a slightly smaller uh, um, gauge than um, probably is initially intuitive. Um, the even though they're synthetic absorbable, these sutures and the, you know the the uh, metabolism of the skin of reptiles is such that these sutures are not going to fall out. Um, you are going to have to take them out. They are functionally not absorbed and uh, broken down by the reptile, and uh, and they'll have to be pulled out almost certainly. The the key feature, I suppose, is that the skin heals slowly. Um, that uh, where we might be pulling sutures, skin or um, more sutures out in uh, 10 days or two weeks for most of our uh, smallies, um, we're going to be leaving these ones in place for um, at least six weeks, maybe sometimes eight or 10 weeks uh, before we consider removing them. And, uh, and the reptiles tolerate these sutures left in for long periods of time uh, relatively well. We're not seeing them scratch at them or try and uh, do things to them like our uh, rats or mice might if we tried to lose something in that long. Um, and I but, think, um, sorry, Mark, yeah, um, yeah, so tell, don't panic. The vets and the clients don't panic about um, um, those sutures potentially being left in for, for longer than that, um, you know, six or eight weeks or so because um, they're usually okay to take out. Um, longer than that and yeah the good news with um, snakes in particular is they don't have any legs so they're not scratching out and trying to scratch out those sutures so we I don't I'm, I'm trying to remember the last snake I had to put an Elizabethan collar on and um, I think I go a very long way back um, to to um, never um, as far as putting an egg collar on a snake there so yeah they, some of them do get a little bit itchy but yeah you're, you're spot on there and uh, I think it's it's the good news with doing surgery in reptiles um, with those skin um, skin sutures there and, and, and the skin wounds there is it's, uh, yeah, I think it's extremely rare that you get um, one of these reptiles that wants to try and um, scratch out or rub a lot with them. Um, so there's a little tip. I was just going to mention a little tip for new players about pruritus in uh, snakes in particular that um, obviously – they, they can't do the usual scratching. They will immerse themselves in water. If uh, you've got a snake that is um, has external parasites or maybe their wound is giving them some worry, um, they will uh, um, stay in their water much longer than, you know, they do bathe. But um, if they're sort of pitching uh, a tent in there and staying in there for long periods of time, start looking for things that might be making them itchy. Yes, um, but, and, and I think that's something, and it's exactly what I was going to um, a mention is that some of these uh, reptiles you need to be a bit careful about um, maybe even thinking about pulling out the um, water bowl for for those snakes after the surgery just for, just for that first um, few days or week or so and being particularly careful about um, hygiene in the um, reptile enclosure for those um, snakes so 
going back to basics with them because these these snakes that we've done um, um, exploratory surgeries, often we're doing that paramedian incision on the ventral aspect of that snake. So they're obviously slithering around on the, on the floor of that enclosure. So going back to put in just sheets of paper, um, changing that paper, getting the client to change the paper every day at least um, and, and, and um, being really careful with their with their disinfection protocols you know maybe every twice a week or so uh, using something like the f10 product to disinfect the enclosure because they're um, to try and minimize any chance of post-operative infections there from them on the um, on, on the substrates that um, have inadequate um, hygiene nice shout out for Andrew there we, we uh, all love our F10 products and um, and uh, um, and this is one of those situations that I would recommend the use of the F10 antiseptic there's two other quick points to make before we uh, get to the end of today's podcast um, the first one is that in the literature that you will read about using horizontal mattress sutures to evert the skin of reptiles and for many years I was fastidious in in uh, making sure we'd got the aversion. The theory was that once the sutures came out, you got a much neater finish. Um, but lately, there's been a number of cases where I just wasn't able to get neat aversion. I placed single interrupted instead of, I'm embarrassed to admit, the horizontal mattress sutures. And these these reptiles still heal up really well. Don't be too panicked is my advice about, um, about the specific suture pattern that you have to employ just get the skin closed and uh, and get a relatively good seal particularly if you've incorporated the um, the uh, body wall just make sure you've got a good seal and um, and then watch the other thing I always uh, talk to the clients about pay attention to as they're healing shedding uh, ectisis will always be a little bit of an issue around the sutures and getting the clients to pay particular attention to moistening the skin and maybe even teasing out a couple of pieces of skin, um, making sure the snakes who will shed in one piece um, that will be interrupted by our sutures and sometimes those snakes need assisting assistance in completing the shed that they've undertaken um, but generally speaking once the, su- once the sutures are out you might have one more shed where it's a little bit irregular but um, the wounds heal so well that um, they're pretty much back to normal by the time they have one or two sheds after the sutures are removed yes um, and guess what um, similar similar um, similar thoughts with me yeah I, I still recommend to to vets and students um, trying to avert the skin slightly and, and, and do mention the horizontal mattress. And I still do that most of the time, although I'm, I'm not overly fussed about making it avert too much. And, and I do sometimes end up just using simple interrupted in them and, and it seems to work quite well as well. So, yeah, I think uh, – so I'm tending to – veer towards instead of saying we need to avert the skin we need to prevent it from inverting um so if we have a a reptile skin that is inverted a a fair amount and puckered inside then yeah we will have potential problems with with um a dissectisis in the future with them um but yeah they heal heal um heal remarkably um well i think um these these um these surgeries so yeah so there's um we may um, we may finish up here. Gee, we've only touched on a couple of the topics of um, of surgery and reptiles, but I think we've highlighted a couple of the really important um, 
important bits for for general practitioners who, who don't deal much with um with reptiles um, um about um the points to consider when they're um t- undertaking um surgery in, in their their reptile patients and and don't forget um send us an email um vetgurus at gmail.com or, or visit our um website vetgurus.com um for more information and the show notes and we'll have a link to a couple of the um products there um in particular one of the ones that um, men- mark mentioned early on is the hemoclips um which is a brand of vascular clip um, that those exotic vets out there, including myself and Mark, we use them all the time. The brand I use is the ones called Liger Clips, which are the opposition brand to the Hemoclips, but they all work fantastically well. They're basically a little skin staple that we can use, not a skin staple, a staple, a titanium staple, um, I think most of them are, that we can use to close off vessels. Um, and it's a great science time-saving um, um, product um, for doing things um, like um, surgical procedures, especially desexins of, of, of the small mammals I use in the lot. I'm using the Liger clips all the time for the for the rabbit desexins, um, for instance, and it saves me a heap of time um, with them. So send us um, an email if you if you um, want to quiz us on um, any further aspects of. Um, of reptile um, surgery. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.